This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hi, everyone. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. It's a podcast where I just read you to sleep. Just because I hope you'll be asleep by the end of this. A couple things. Tonight, I'm going to be recording from the shores of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. I'm finishing up this uh, nine-week program right now, the Transom Story Workshop, where... Rookies like me get to learn how to make good radio from the best in the business. So I have to thank the incredible Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media for this cozy recording space. Also, the music you're hearing right now is from my good friend James Lepkowski, played on this amazing guitar ukulele thing he made. And lastly, the show is continuing to grow. We even have a, a website up now. You can go to sleepyradio.com where you can go and listen to episodes and look at the background of a starry night as you fall asleep. So as we keep growing, a rating and a review from you would help to keep it going. So if the show does help you sleep, go and give a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other restless, sleepy people find the show. Since it's my last week recording from Cape Cod, I'm going to read Cape Cod by Henry David Thoreau. This might be an unpopular opinion, but I always thought he was so boring. <laughs> I never really liked him. But maybe that's perfect for Sleepy. And I've never read this book about the Cape, so I'm going to start it tonight and try to get through it without falling asleep myself. So lay your head down, settle in, fix your pillow just how you like it, and slowly melt into your bed, close your eyes, and let me read to you.
the shipwreck. Wishing to get a better view than I had yet of the ocean, which we are told covers more than two-thirds of the globe, but of which a man who lives a few miles inland may never see any trace, more than of another world, I made a visit to Cape Cod in October 1849, another the succeeding June, and another to Truro in July 1855. The first and last time with a single companion, the second time alone. I have spent in all about three weeks on the Cape, walked from Eastham to Provincetown twice on the Atlantic side, and once on the Bay side also, excepting four or five miles, and crossed the Cape half a dozen times on my way. But having come so fresh to the sea, I have got but little salted. My readers must expect only so much saltness as the land breeze acquires from blowing over an arm of the sea, or is tasted on the windows and the bark of trees twenty miles inland, after September gales. I have been accustomed to make excursions to the ponds within ten miles of Concord, but latterly have extended my excursions to the seashore. I do not see why I might not make a book on Cape Cod, as well as my neighbors on human culture, is but another name for the same thing, and hardly a sandier phase of it. As for my title, I suppose that the word cape is from the French cap, which is from the Latin caput, a head, which is perhaps from the verb caper, to take, that being the part by which we take hold of a thing, take time by the forelock. It is also the safest part to take a serpent by. But as for cod, that was derived directly from that great store of codfish, which Captain Bartholomew Gosnell caught there in 1602, which fish appears to have been so-called from the Saxon word cod, a case in which seeds are lodged, either from the form of the fish or the quantity of spawn it contains, whence also, perhaps, codling and coddle to cook green like peas, Cape Cod is the bared and bended arm of Massachusetts. The shoulder is at Buzzard's Bay, the elbow or crazy bone at Cape Malberry, the wrist at Truro, and the sandy fist at Provincetown, behind which the state stands on her guard, with her back to the green mountains, and her feet planted on the floor of the ocean, like an athlete protecting her bay, boxing with northeast storms, and ever and anon heaving up her Atlantic adversary from the lap of earth, ready to thrust forward her other fist, which keeps guard while upon her breast at Cape Ann. On studying the map, I saw that there must be an uninterrupted beach on the east or outside of the forearm of the Cape, more than thirty miles from the general line of the coast, which would afford a good sea view. But that, on account of an opening in the beach, forming the entrance to Nosset Harbor in Orleans. I must strike it and ease them. If I approached it by land, and probably I could walk thenceforth to Race Point, about 28 miles, and not meet with any obstruction. We left Concord, Massachusetts on Tuesday, October 9, 1849. On reaching Boston, we found that Provincetown steamer, which should have gotten the day before, had not yet arrived on account of a violent storm, and as we noticed in the streets a handbill headed, Death, 
145 lives lost at Cahasset. We decided to go by way of Cahasset. We found many Irish in the cars, going to identify bodies and to sympathize with the survivors, and also to attend the funeral, which was to take place in the afternoon. And when we arrived in Cahasset, it appeared that nearly all of the passengers were bound for the beach, which was about a mile distant and many other persons were flocking in from the neighboring country. There were several hundreds of them streaming off over Cahasset Common in that direction, some on foot and some in wagons, and among them were some sportsmen in their hunting jackets with their guns and game bags and dogs. As we passed the graveyard, we saw a large hole, like a cellar, freshly dug there, and just before reaching the shore, by a pleasantly winding and rocky road, we met several hay riggings and farm wagons coming away toward the meeting house, each loaded with three large, rough deal boxes. We did not need to ask what was in them. The owners of the wagons were made the undertakers. Many horses and carriages were fastened to the fences near the shore, and for a mile or more up and down, the beach was covered with people looking out for bodies, and examining the fragments of the wreck. There was a small island called Brook Island, with a hut on it, lying just offshore. This is said to be the rockiest shore in Massachusetts, from Nantasket to Situate, hard, scientic rocks, which the waves have laid bare, but have not been able to crumble. It has been the scene of many a shipwreck. The brig St. John from Galway, Ireland, laden with emigrants, was wrecked on Sunday morning. It was now Tuesday morning, and the sea was still breaking violently on the rocks. There were 18 or 20 of the same large boxes that I've mentioned, lying on a green hillside, a few rods from the water, and surrounded by a crowd. The bodies which had been recovered, 27 or 8 in all, had been collected there. Some were rapidly nailing down the lids. Others were carting the boxes away, and others were lifting the lids, which were yet loose, and peeping under the claws for each body, which such rags still adhered to it, was covered loosely with a white sheet. I witnessed no signs of grief, but there was a sober dispatch of business which was affecting. One man was seeking to identify a particular body, and one undertaker or carpenter was calling to another to know in what box a certain child was put. I saw many marble feet and matted heads as the claws were raised, and one livid, swollen and mangled body of a drowned girl who probably had intended to go out to service in some American family, to which some rags still adhered, with a string half concealed by the flesh about its swollen neck the coiled-up wreck of a human hulk, gashed by rocks or fishes so that the bone and muscle were exposed, but quite bloodless, merely red and white, with wide-open and staring eyes, yet lusterless, dead lights, or like the cabin windows of a stranded vessel filled with sand. Sometimes there were two or more children, or a parent and a child in the same box, and on the lid would perhaps be written in red chalk, Bridget, such a one, and sister's child. The surrounding sword 
was covered with bits of sails and clothing. I have since heard from one who lives by this beach that a woman who had come over before but had left her infant behind for her sister to bring came and looked into these boxes and saw in one probably the same whose superscription I have quoted her child in her sister's arms as if the sister had meant to be found thus and within three days later the mother died from the effect of the sight we turned from this and walked along the rocky shore. In the first cove, there were strewn what seemed fragments of a vessel, and small pieces mixed with sand and seaweed, and great quantities of feathers. But it looked so old and rusty that I at first took it to be some old wreck which had lain there for many years. I even thought of Captain Kidd, and that the feathers were those which a sea fowl had cast there and perhaps there might be some tradition about it in the neighborhood. I asked a sailor if that was the St. John. He said it was. I asked him where she struck. He pointed to a rock in front of us, a mile from the shore, called it the Grampus Rock, and added, You can see a part of her sticking up. It looks like a small bow. I saw it. It was thought to be held by the chain cables and the anchors. I asked if the bodies which I saw were all that had drowned. Not a quarter of them, said he. Where are the rest? Most of them right underneath that piece, you see. It appeared to us that there was enough rubbish to make the wreck of a large vessel in this cove alone, and that it would take many days to cart it off. It was several feet deep, and here and there was a bonnet or a jacket on it. In the very midst of the crowd about this wreck, there were men with carts busily collecting seaweed which the storm had cast up and conveying it beyond the reach of the tide, though they were often obliged to separate fragments of clothing from it, and they might at any moment have found a human body under it, drown who might. They did not forget this weed was a valuable manure. The shipwreck had not produced a visible vibration in the fabric of society. About a mile south we could see, rising above the rocks, the mass of the British brig which the St. John had endeavored to follow, which had slipped her cables and by good luck run into the mouth of Glassic Harbor. A little further along the shore we saw a man's clothes on a rock, further a woman's scarf, a gown, a straw bonnet, the brig's caboose, and one of her masts high and dry broken into several pieces. In another rocky cove, several rods from the water and behind rocks twenty feet high, lay a part of one side of the vessel, still hanging together. It was perhaps forty feet long by fourteen wide. I was even more surprised at the power of the waves exhibited on this shattered fragment than I had been at the sight of the smaller fragments before. The largest timbers and iron braces were broken superfluously, and I saw that no material could withstand the power of the waves. That iron must go to pieces in such a case, and an iron vessel would be cracked up like an eggshell on the rocks. Some of these timbers, however, were so rotten that I could almost thrust my umbrella through them. They told us that some were saved on this piece, but also showed where the sea had heaved it into this cove which was now dry. When I saw where it had come in, 
and in what condition. I wondered that any had been saved on it. A little further on, a crowd of men was collected around the mate of the St. John, who was telling his story. He was a slim-looking youth who spoke to the captain as the master and seemed a little excited. He was saying that when they jumped into the boat, she filled, and the vessel lurching the weight of the water in the boat caused the painter to break, and so they were separated, whereat one man came away, saying, Well, I don't see, but he tells a straight story enough. You see, the weight of the water in the boat that broke the painter, a boat full of water is very heavy, and so on, in a loud and impertinently earnest tone, as if he had a bet depending on it, but had no humane interest in the matter. Another, a large man, stood nearby upon a rock, gazing into the sea, and chewing large quids of tobacco, as if that habit were forever confirmed with him. Come, says another to his companion, let's be off. We've seen the whole of it. It's no use to stay to the funeral. Further, we saw one standing upon a rock, who, we were told, was one that was saved. He was a sober-looking man, dressed in a jacket and gray pantaloons, with his hands in his pockets. I asked him a few questions, which he answered, but he seemed unwilling to talk about it, and I soon walked away. By his side stood one of the lifeboatmen in an oilcloth jacket who told us how they went to the relief of the British brig, thinking that the boat of the St. John, which they had passed on the way, held all of her crew, for the waves prevented their seeing those who were in the vessel, though they might have saved some had they known how many were there. A little further was the flag of the St. John, spread on a rock to dry, and held down by stones at the corners. This frail but essential and significant portion of the vessel, which had so long been the sport of the winds, was sure to reach the shore. There were one or two houses visible from these rocks, in which there were some of the survivors recovering from the shock which their bodies and minds had sustained. One was not expected to live. We kept on down the shore as far as a promontory called Whitehead, that we might see more of Cahasset Rocks, in a little cove within half a mile. There were an old man and his son collecting, with their team, the seaweed which that fatal storm had cast up, as serenely employed as if there had never been a wreck in the world, though they were within the sight of Grampus Rock, on which the St. John had struck. The old man had heard that there was a wreck, and knew most of the particulars, but he said that he had not been up there since it happened. It was the wrecked weed that concerned him most. Rockweed, kelp, and seaweed, as he named them, which he carted to his barnyard, and those bodies were to him but other weeds which the tide had cast up, but which were of no use to him. We afterwards came to the lifeboat in its harbor, waiting for another emergency, and in the afternoon we saw the funeral procession at a distance, at the head of which walked the captain with the other survivors. On the whole, it was not so impressive a scene as I might have expected. If I had found one body cast upon the beach in some lonely place, it would have affected me more. I sympathized rather with the winds and waves, as if to toss and mangle these poor human bodies was the order of the day. 
If this was the law of nature, why waste any time in awe or pity? If the last day were come, we should not think so much about the separation of friends or the blighted prospects of individuals. I saw that corpses might be multiplied, as on the field of battle, till they no longer affected us in any degree, as exceptions to the common law of humanity. Take all the graveyards together. They are always the majority. It is the individual and private that demands our sympathy. A man can attend but one funeral in the course of his life, can behold but one corpse. Yet I saw that the inhabitants of the shore would not be a little affected by this event. They would watch there many days and nights for the sea to give up its dead, and their imaginations and sympathies would supply the place of mourners far away, who as yet not know the wreck. Many days after this, something white was seen floating on the water by one who was sauntering on the beach. It was approached in a boat and found to be the body of a woman, which had risen in an upright position, whose white cap was blown back with the wind. I saw that the beauty of the shore itself was wrecked for many a lonely walker there, until he could perceive, at last, how its beauty was enhanced by the wrecks like this, and it acquired thus a rarer and sublimer beauty still. Why care for these dead bodies? They really have no friends but worms or fishes. Their owners were coming to the new world, as Columbus and the pilgrims did. They were within a mile of its shores, but before they could reach it, they immigrated to a newer world than ever Columbus dreamed of. Yet one of these existence, we believe that there is far more universal and convincing evidence. Though it has not yet been discovered by science, than Columbus had of this, not merely mariners' tales and some paltry driftwood and seaweed, but a continental drift and instinct to all our shores. I saw their empty hulks that came to land, but they themselves, meanwhile, were cast upon some shore yet further west, toward which we were all tending, and which we should all reach at last, and maybe through storm and darkness as they did, no doubt. We have a reason to thank God. They have not yet been shipwrecked into life again. The mariner who makes the safest port in heaven, perchance, seems to his friends on earth to be shipwrecked, for they deem Boston Harbor the better place, though perhaps invisible to them. A skillful pilot comes to meet him, and the fairest and balmiest gales blows off the coast. His good ship makes the land in Halcyon days, and he kisses the shore in rapture there, while his old hulk tosses in the surf here. It is hard to part with one's body, but no doubt it is easy enough to do without it once it's gone. All their plans and hopes burst like a bubble. Infants by the score, dashed on the rocks by the enraged Atlantic Ocean. No, no. If the St. John did not make her port here, she has been telegraphed there. The strongest wind cannot stagger a spirit. It is the spirit's breath. A just man's purpose cannot be split on any grampus or material rock, but itself will split rocks till it succeeds. The verses. The verses addressed to Columbus, dying, may, with slight alterations, 
be applied to the passengers of the St. John. Soon with them will all be over, soon the voyage will be begun. That shall bear them to discover, far away land unknown. Land that each alone must visit, but no tidings bring to men. For no sailor once departed, ever hath returned again. No carved wood, no broken branches, ever drift from that far wild. He who on that ocean launches, meets no course of angel child. Undismayed, my noble sailors, spread, then spread your canvas out. Spirits on a sea of ether, soon shall ye serenely float. Where the deep no plummet soundeth, fear no hidden breakers there, and the fanning wing of angels shall your bark right onward bear. Quit now, full of heart and comfort, those rude shores they are of earth, where the rosy clouds are parting, there the blessed isles loom forth. One summer day since this, I came this way on foot along the shore from Boston. It was so warm that some horses had climbed to the very top of the rampants of the old fort at the hall, where there was hardly room to turn around for the sake of the breeze. The Datura Stramonium, or thorn apple, was in full bloom along the beach, and at the sight of this cosmopolite, this Captain Cook among plants, carried in ballast all over the world, I felt as if I were on the highway of nations. Say, rather, this Viking, king of the bays, for it is not an innocent plant. It suggests not merely commerce, but its attendant vices, as if its fibers were the stuff of which pirates spin their yarns. I heard the voices of men shouting aboard a vessel, half a mile from shore, which sounded as if they were in a barn in the country, they being between the sails. It was a purely rural sound. As I looked over the water, I saw the isles rapidly wasting away, the sea nibbling voraciously at the continent, their springing arch of a hill suddenly interrupted, as at Point Allerton, what botanists might call primorse, showing by its curve against the sky how much space it must have occupied, where now was water only. On the other hand, these wrecks of isles were being fancifully arranged in new shores, as at Hog Island, inside of Hull, where everything seemed to be gently lapsing into futurity. This isle had got the very form of a ripple, and I thought that the inhabitants should bear a ripple for device on their shields, a wave passing over them, with the detura, which is said to produce mental alienation of long duration without affecting the bodily health, springing from its edge. The most interesting thing which I heard of in this township of Hull was an unfailing spring, whose locality was pointed out to me on the side of a distant hill as I was panting along the shore, though I did not visit it. Perhaps, if I should go through Rome, it would be some spring on the Capitoline Hill I should remember the longest. It is true, I was somewhat interested in the well at the old French fort, which was said to be ninety feet deep, with a cannon at the bottom of it. On Nantasket Beach I countered a dozen chassis from the public house, from time to time, the riders turned their horses toward the sea, 
standing in the water for the coolness, and I saw the value of beaches to cities for the sea breeze and the bath. At Jerusalem village, the inhabitants were collecting in haste before a thunder shower now approaching. The Irish moss, which they had spread to dry, the shower passed on one side and gave me a few drops only, which did not cool the air. I merely felt a puff upon my cheek, though within sight, a vessel was capsized in the bay, and several others dragged their anchors and were near going ashore. The sea bathing at Cohasset Rocks was perfect. The water was purer and more transparent than any I had ever seen. There was not a particle of mud or slime about it. The bottom being sandy, I could see the sea perch swimming about, the smooth and fantastically worn rocks, and the perfectly clean and tress-like rock weeds falling over you, and attached so firmly to the rocks that you could pull yourself up by them, greatly enhanced the luxury of the bath. The stripe of barnacles just above the weeds reminded me of some vegetable growth, the buds, the petals, the seed vessels of flowers. They lay among the seams of rocks, like buttons on a waistcoat. It was one of the hottest days of the year, yet I found the water so icy cold that I could swim but a stroke or two, and thought that, in case of shipwreck, there would be more danger of being chilled to death than simply drowned. One immersion was enough to make you forget the dog days utterly. Though you were sweltering before, it will take you half an hour now to remember that it was ever warm. There were the tawny rocks, like lion's cachon, defying the ocean, whose waves incessantly dashed against and scoured them with the vast quantities of gravel. The water held in their little hollows on the receding of the tide and was so crystalline that I could not believe it salt, but wished to drink it. And higher up were basins of fresh water left by the rain, all which, being also of different depths and temperature, or convenient for different kinds of baths. Also the larger hollows in the smooth rocks formed the most convenient of seats and dressing rooms. In these respects, it was the most perfect seashore that I had seen. I saw in Cahasset, separated from the sea, only by a narrow beach, a handsome but shallow lake of some 400 acres, which I was told the sea had tossed over the beach in a great storm in the spring and after the alewives had passed into it, it had stopped up its outlet, and now the alewives were dying by the thousands, and the inhabitants were apprehending a pestilence as the water evaporated. It had five rocky islets in it. This rocky shore is called Pleasant Cove on some maps. On the map of Casa, that name appears to be confined to the particular cove where I saw the wreck of the St. John. The ocean did not look now as if any were shipwrecked in it. It was not grand and sublime, but beautiful as a lake. Not a vestige of a wreck was visible, nor could I believe that the bones of many a shipwrecked man were buried in that pure sand. But to go on with our first excursion. Stagecoach Views After spending the night in Bridgewater, and picking up a few arrowheads there in the morning, we took the cars for Sandwich, where we arrived before noon. This was the terminus of the Cape Cod Railroad. 
though it is but the beginning of the Cape. As it rained hard with driving mist, and there was no sign of its holding up, we here took the almost obsolete conveyance, the stage, for as far as it went that day, as we told the driver. We had forgotten how far a stage should go in a day, but we were told that the Cape roads were very heavy, though they added that being of sand, the rain would improve them. This coach was an exceedingly narrow one, but as there was a slight spherical excess over two on the seat, the driver waited till nine passengers had got in without taking the measure of any of them, and then shut the door after two or three ineffectual slams, as if the fault were all in the hinges or the latch, while we timed our inspirations and expirations so as to assist him. We were now fairly on the cape, which extends from Sandwich eastward 35 miles, and thence north and northwest 30 more, in all 65, and has an average breadth of about 5 miles. In the interior, it rises to the height of 200, and sometimes perhaps 300 feet above the level of the sea. According to Hitchcock, the geologist of the state, it is composed almost entirely of sand, though to the depth of 300 feet in some places, though there is probably a concealed core of rock a little beneath the surface, and it is a Dillavan origin, excepting a small portion at the extremity and elsewhere along the shores, which it is alluvial. For the first half of the cape, large blocks of stone are found, here and there, mixed with sand, but for the last 30 miles, boulders, or even gravel, are rarely met with. Hitchcock conjectures that the ocean has, in course of time, eaten out Boston Harbor and other bays in the mainland, and that the minute fragments have been deposited by the currents at a distance from the shore and formed this sandbank. Above the sand, if the surface is subjected to agricultural tests, there is found to be a thin layer of soil gradually diminishing from Barnstable to Truro, where it ceases. But there are many holes and rents in this weather-beaten garment, not likely to be stitched in time, which reveal the naked flesh of the cape, and its extremity is completely bare. I at once got out my book, the eighth volume of the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society, printed in 1802, which contains some short notices of the Cape Towns, and began to read up to where I was, for in cars I could not read as fast as I traveled. To those who came from the side of Plymouth, it said, after riding through a body of woods, twelve miles in extent, interspersed with but a few houses, the settlement of Sandwich appears, with a more agreeable effect to the eye of the traveler. Another writer speaks of this as a beautiful village, but I think that our villages will bear to be contrasted only with one another, not with nature. I have no great respect for the writer's taste, who talks easily about beautiful villages, embellished, perchance, with a fulling mill, a handsome academy, or a meeting house, and a number of shops for the different mechanic arts, where the green and white houses of gentry drawn up in rows, front on a street, of which it would be difficult to tell whether it is most like a desert or long stable yard. Such spots can be beautiful only to the weary traveler, or the returning native, or perchance 
the repentant misanthrope, not to him who, with unprejudiced senses, has just come out of the woods and approaches one of them by a bare road, though a succession of straggling homesteads where he cannot tell which is the almshouse. However, as for sandwich, I cannot speak particularly. Ours was but half a sandwich at most, and that must have fallen on the buttered side some time. I only saw that it was a closely built town for a small one, with glassworks to improve its sand, and narrow streets in which we turned round and round till we could not tell which way we were going. And the rain came in, first on this side and then on that, and I saw that they and the houses were more comfortable than we in the coach. My book also said of this town, the inhabitants in general are substantial livers. That is, I suppose, they do not live like philosophers, but as the stage did not stop long enough for us to dine, we had no opportunity to test the truth of this statement. It may have referred, however, to the quantity of oil they would yield. It further said, the inhabitants of Sandwich generally manifest a fond and steady adherence to the manners, employments, and modes of living which characterize their fathers, which made me think that they were, after all, very much like all the rest of the world. And it added that this was a resemblance which, at this day, will constitute no impeachment of either their virtue or taste, which remark proves to me that the writer was one of the rest of them. No people ever lived by cursing their fathers, however great a curse their fathers might have been to them. But it must be confessed that ours was an old authority, and probably they have changed all that now. Our route was along the bayside, through Barnstable, Yarmouth, Dennis, and Brewster, to Orleans, a range of low hills on our right, running down the Cape. The weather was not favorable for wayside views, but we made the most of such glimpses of land and water as we could get through the rain. The country was, for the most part, bare, or with only a little scrubby wood left on the hills. We noticed in Yarmouth, and, if I did not mistake, in Dennis, large tracks where pitch pines were planted four or five years before. They were in rows as they appeared when we were abreast of them, and accepting that their extensive and vacant spaces seemed to be doing remarkably well. This, we were told, was the only use to which such tracks could be profitably put. Every higher eminence had a pole set up on it, with an old storm coat or sail tied to it, for a signal that on those on the south side of the Cape, for instance, might know when the Boston packets had arrived on the north. It appeared as if this use must absorb the greater part of the old clothes of the Cape, leaving but few rags for the peddlers. The windmills on the hills, large weather-strained octagonal structures, and the salt works scattered all along the shore with their long rows of vats resting on piles driven into the marsh, their low turtle-like roofs, and their slighter windmills were novel and interesting objects to an inlander. The sand by the roadside was partially covered with bunches of moss-like plant, Hudsonia tomentosa, which a woman in the stage told us was called poverty grass, because it grew where nothing else would. I was struck by the pleasant equality which reigned among the stage company, 
and their broad and invulnerable good humor. They were what is called free and easy, and met one another to advantage, as men who had, at length, learned how to live. They appeared to know each other when they were strangers. They were so simple and downright. They were well met, in an unusual sense, that is, they met as well as they could meet, and did not seem to be troubled with any impediment. They were not afraid nor ashamed of one another, but were contented to make just such a company as the ingredients allowed. It was evident that the same foolish respect was not here claimed. For mere wealth and station, that is in many parts of New England, yet some of them were the first people, as they are called, of the various towns through which we passed. Retired sea captains, in easy circumstances, who talked of farming as sea captains are wont, an erect, respectable, and trustworthy-looking man in his wrapper, some of the salt of the earth, who had formerly been the salt of the sea, or more a country gentleman who, perchance, had been a representative to the general court in his day, or a broad, red-faced Cape Cod man who had seen too many storms to be easily irritated, or a fisherman's wife who had been waiting a week for a coaster to leave to Boston and had at length come by the cars. A strict regard for truth obliged us to stay, that the few women whom we saw that day looked exceedingly pinched up. They had prominent chins and noses, having lost all their teeth, and a sharp W would represent their profile. They were not so well preserved as their husbands, or perchance they were well preserved as dried specimens. Their husbands, however, were pickled. But we respect them not less for all that. Our own dental system is far from perfect. Still, we kept on in the rain, or if we stopped, it was commonly at a post office, and we thought that writing letters and sorting them against our arrival must be the principal employment of the inhabitants of the Cape this rainy day. The post office appeared a singularly domestic institution here. Ever and anon, the stage stopped before some low shop or dwelling, and a wheelwright or shoemaker appeared in his shirt sleeves and leather apron, with spectacles newly donned, holding up Uncle Sam's bag as if it were a slice of homemade cake for the travelers, while he retailed some piece of gossip to the driver, really as indifferent to the presence of the former as if they were so much baggage. In one instance, we understood that a woman was the postmistress, and they said that she made the best one on the road. We suspected that the letters must be subjected to a very close scrutiny here. While we were stopping for this purpose at Dennis, we ventured to put our heads out of the windows to see where we were going and saw rising before us through the mist singular barren hills, all stricken with poverty grass, looming up as if they were in the horizon, though they were close to us, and we seemed to have got to the end of the land on that side, notwithstanding that the horses were still headed that way. Indeed, that part of Dennis which we saw was an exceedingly barren and desolate country, of a character which I can find no name for, such a surface, perhaps, as the bottom of the sea made dry land before yesterday. It was covered with poverty grass, and there was hardly a tree in sight. But here and there, 
a little weather-stained, one-storied house with a red roof, for often the roof was painted, though the rest of the house was not, standing bleak and cheerless, yet with a broad foundation to the land where the comfort must have been on side. Yet we read the Gazetteer, for we carried that too with us, that in 1837, 150 masters of vessels belonging to this town sailed from the various ports of the Union. There must be many more houses in the south part of the town, else we cannot imagine where they all lodge when they are home, if ever they are there. But the truth is, their houses are floating ones, and their home is on the ocean. There are almost no trees at all in this part of Dennis, nor could I learn that they talked of setting out any. It is true, there was a meeting house, set round with Lombardy poplars in a hollow square, the rows fully as straight as the studs of the building, and the corners as square. But, if I did not mistake, every one of them was dead. I cannot help but thinking that they need a revival here. Our book said that in 1795 there was erected in Dennis an elegant meeting house with a steeple. Perhaps this was the one, though whether it had a steeple or had died down so far from sympathy with the poplars, I do not remember. Another meeting house in this town was described as a neat building, but of the meeting house in Chatham, a neighboring town, for there was then but one, nothing is said, except that it is in good repair, both which remarks, I trust, may be understood as applying to the church's spiritual as well as material. However, elegant meeting houses, from that Trinity One on Broadway to this at Knobs Gusset, in my estimation, belong to the same category with beautiful villages. I was never in season to see one. Handsome is that handsome does. What they did for shade here, in warm weather, we did not know, though we read that fogs are more frequent in Chatham than in any other part of the country, and they serve in summer, instead of trees, to shelter the houses against the heat of the sun. To those who delight in extensive vision, is to be inferred that the inhabitants of Chatham do not. They are unpleasant, but they are not found to be unhealthful. Probably, also, the unobstructed sea breeze answers the purpose of a fan. The historian of Chatham says further that in many families there's no difference between the breakfast and supper, cheese, cakes, and pies being as common at the one as at the other. But that leaves us still uncertain whether they were really common at either. The road, which was quite hilly, here ran from the bay shore, having the bay on one side, and the rough hill of Scargo, said to be the highest land on the Cape, on the other. Of the wide prospect of the bay afforded by the summit of this hill, our guide says, the view has not much of the beautiful in it, but it communicates a strong emotion of the sublime. That is the kind of communication which we love to have made to us. We passed through the village of Suet and Dennis, on Suet and Kivet next, of which it is said, when compared with Nubscusset, we had a misty recollection of having passed through, or near to, the latter. It may be denominated a pleasant village, but in comparison with the village of Sandwich, 
there's little or no beauty in it. However, we liked Dennis well, better than any town we had seen on the Cape. It was so novel, and in that stormy day, so sublimely dreary. Captain John Sears of Suez was the first person in this country who obtained pure marine salt by solar evaporation alone, though it had long been made in a similar way on the coast of France and elsewhere. This was in the year 1776, at which time, on account of the war, salt was scarce and dear. The historical collections contain an interesting account of his experiments, which we read when we first saw the ruse of the salt works. Barnstable County is the most favorable locality for these works on our northern coast. There's so little fresh water here emptying into the ocean. Quite recently, there were about $2 million invested in this business here, but now the Cape is unable to compete with the importers of salt and manufacturers of it at the West, and accordingly, her salt works are fast going to decay. From making salt, they turn to fishing more than ever. The Gazetteer will uniformly tell you, under the head of each town, how many go a-fishing, and the value of fish and oil taken, how much salt is made and used, how many are engaged in the coasting trade, how many in manufacturing, palm-leaf hats, leather, boots, shoes, and tinware, and then it has done, and leaves you to imagine the more truly domestic manufactures, which were nearly the same all the world over. Late in the afternoon, we rode through Brewster, so named after Elder Brewster, for fear he would be forgotten else. Who has not heard of Elder Brewster? Who knows who he was? This appeared to be the modern built town of the Cape, the favorite residence of retired sea captains. It is said that there are more masters and mates of vessels which sail on foreign voyages belonging to this place than to any other town in the country. There are many of the modern American houses here, such as they turn out at Cambridge Port, standing on the sand. You could almost swear that they have been floated down the Charles River and drifted across the bay. I call them American because they are paid for by Americans and put up by American carpenters. But they are little removed from the lumber, only eastern stuff disguised with white paint, the least interesting kind of driftwood to me. Perhaps we have reason to be proud of our naval architecture and need not go to the Greeks or to the Goths or Italians for the models of our vessels. Sea captains do not employ a Cambridgeport carpenter to build their floating houses, and for their houses on shore, if they must copy any, it would be more agreeable to the imagination to see one of their vessels turned bottom upward in the Numidian fashion. We read that, at certain seasons, the reflection of the sun upon the windows of the houses in Wellfleet and Truro, across the inner side of the elbow of the Cape, is discernible with the naked eye, at a distance of 18 miles and upward, on the county road. This we were pleased to imagine, as we had not seen the sun in 24 hours. The same author, the Reverend John Simpkins, said of the inhabitants a good while ago, no persons appear to have a greater relish for the social circle and domestic pleasures. They are not in the habit of frequenting taverns 
unless on public occasions. I know not a proper idler or tavern haunter in the place. This is more than can be said of my townsmen. At length, we stopped for the night at Higgins Tavern in Orleans, feeling very much as if we were on a sandbar in the ocean and not knowing whether we should see land or water ahead when the mist cleared away. We here overtook two Italian boys who had waded thus far down the cape through the sand with their organs on their backs and were going to Provincetown. What a hard lot, we thought, if the Provincetown people should shut their doors against them. Whose yard would they go to next? Yet we concluded that they had chosen wisely to come here, where other music than that of the surf must be rare. Thus the great civilizer sends out his emissaries sooner or later to every sandy cape and lighthouse of the new world which the census taker visits and summons the savage there to surrender. The Plains of Nosset The next morning, Thursday, October 11th, it rained as hard as ever, but we were determined to proceed on foot, nevertheless. We first made some inquiries with regard to the practicality of walking up the shore on the Atlantic side to Provincetown, whether we should meet with any creeks or marshes to trouble us. Higgins said that there was no obstruction, and that it was not much farther than by the road, but he thought that we should find it very heavy, walking in the sand. It was bad enough in the road. A horse would sink up to the fetlocks there, but there was one man at the tavern who had walked it, and he said that we could very well go, though it was sometimes inconvenient and even dangerous walking under the bank, where there was a great tide with an easterly wind, which caused the sand to cave. For the first four or five miles, we followed the road, which here turned to the north on the elbow, the narrowest part of the cave, that we might be clear of an inlet from the ocean, a part of Nosset Harbor, or Orleans on our right. We found the traveling good enough for walkers on the sides of the roads, though it was heavy for horses in the middle. We walked with our umbrellas behind us, since it blowed hard as well as rained, with driving mist as the day before, and the wind helped us over the sand at a rapid rate. Everything indicated that we had reached a strange shore. The road was a mere lane, winding over bare swells of bleak and barren-looking sand. The houses were few and far between, besides being small and rusty, though they appeared to be kept in good repair, and their dooryards, which were the unfenced cape, were tidy, or rather, they looked as if the ground around them was blown clean by the wind. Perhaps a scarcity of wood here, and the consequent absence of the woodpile and other wooden straps, had something to do with this appearance. They seemed like mariners ashore, to have sat right down to enjoy the firmness of the land without studying their postures or habiliments. To them it was merely terra firma and cognita, not yet fertilis and jacunda. Every landscape which is dreary enough has a certain beauty to my eyes, and in this instance its permanent qualities were enhanced by the weather. Everything told of the sea, even when we did not see its waste or hear its roar. For birds there were gulls, and for carts in the fields 
boats turned bottom upward against the houses, and sometimes the rib of a whale was woven into the fence by the roadside. The trees were, if possible, rarer than the houses, excepting the apple trees, of which there were a few small orchards in the hollows. These were either narrow and high, with flat tops, having lost their side branches, like huge plum bushes growing in exposed situations, or else dwarfed and branching immediately at the ground, like quince bushes. They suggested that, under like circumstances, all trees would at last acquire like habits of growth. I afterwards saw in the Cape many full-grown apple trees not higher than a man's head, one whole orchard, indeed, where all the fruit could have been gathered by a man standing on the ground, but you could hardly creep beneath the trees. Some, which the owners told me were twenty years old, were only three and a half feet high, spreading at six inches from the ground, five feet each way, and being withal surrounded with boxes of tar to catch the canker worms. They looked like plants in flower pots, and as if they might be taken into the house in the winter. In another place, I saw some not much larger than currant bushes, yet the owner told me that they had borne a barrel and a half of apples that fall. If they had been placed close together, I could have cleared them all at a jump. I measured some near the highland light in Truro, which had been taken from the shrubby woods thereabouts when young and grafted. One which had been set ten years was on average eighteen inches high and spread nine feet with a flat top. It had borne one bushel of apples from two years before. Another, probably twenty years old from the seed, was five feet high and spread eighteen feet, branching, as usual, at the ground so that you could not creep under it. This bore a barrel of apples two years before. The owner of these trees invariably used the personal pronoun in speaking of them, as, I got him out of the woods, but he doesn't bear. The largest that I saw in the neighborhood was nine feet high to the topmost leaf and spread thirty-three feet, branching at the ground five ways. In one yard, I observed a single, very healthy-looking tree, while all the rest were dead or dying. The occupant said that his father had manured all but one with blackfish. This habit of growth should, no doubt, be encouraged, and they should not be trimmed up, as some traveling practitioners have advised. In 1802, there was not a single fruit tree in Chatham, the next town to Orleans. On the south, in the old account of Orleans' ways, Fruit trees cannot be made to grow within a mile of the ocean. Even those which are placed at a greater distance are injured by the east winds, and after violent storms in the spring, a saltish taste is perceptible on their bark. We noticed that they were often covered with a yellow lichen like rust, the Parmelia peritina. The most foreign and picturesque structures on the Cape to the inlander not expecting the salt works, are the windmills. Gray-looking, octagonal towers with long timbers slanting to the ground in the rear and they're resting on a cartwheel by which their fans are turned round to face the wind. These appear to serve and... These appeared also to serve in some measure for props against its force. A great circular rut was worn around the building by the wheel 
The neighbors who assemble to turn the mill to the wind are likely to know which way it blows, without a weathercock. They look loose and slightly locomotive, like huge wounded birds, trailing a wing or a leg, and reminded one of pictures of the Netherlands. Being on elevated ground and high in themselves, they serve as landmarks, for there are no tall trees or other objects commonly, which can be seen at a distance in the horizon. Though the outline of the land itself is firm and distinct, that an insignificant cone or even precipice of sand is visible at a great distance from over the sea, sailors making the land commonly steer either by the windmills or the meeting houses. In the country we are obliged to steer by the meeting houses alone, yet the meeting house is kind of a windmill which runs one day in seven, turned either by the winds of doctrine or public opinion, or more rarely by the winds of heaven, or another sort of grist is ground, of which, if it be not plaster, we trust to make bread of life. There were, here and there, heaps of shells in the fields, where clams had been opened for bait, for Orleans is famous for its shellfish, especially clams, or, as our author says, to speak more properly, worms. The shores are more fertile than the dry land. The inhabitants measure their crops, not only by bushels of corn, but by barrels of clams. A thousand barrels of clam bait are counted as equal in value to six or eight thousand bushels of Indian corn, and once they were procured without more labor or expense, and the supply was thought to be inexhaustible. Four runs the history after a portion of the shore has been dug over, and almost all the clams taken up. At the end of two years, it is said that they are as plenty as there are ever. It is even affirmed by many persons that it is necessary to stir the clam ground frequently, as it is to hoe a field of potatoes, because, if the labor is omitted, the clams will be crowded too closely together and will be prevented from increasing in size. But we were told that the small clam, Maya arenaria, was not so plenty here as formerly. Probably the clam ground has been stirred too frequently after all. Nevertheless, one man, who complained that they fed pigs with them and so made them scarce, told me that he dug and opened $126 worth in one winter in Truro. We crossed a brook not more than fourteen rods long between Orleans and Eastham, called Jeremiah's Gutter. The Atlantic is said to sometimes meet the bay here and isolate the northern part of the Cape. The streams of the Cape are necessarily formed on a minute scale since there is no room for them to run without tumbling immediately into the sea. And beside, we found it difficult to run ourselves in that sand where there was no want for room Hence, the least channel where water runs, or may run, is important, and is dignified with a name. We read that there is no running water in Chatham, which is the next town. The barren aspect of land would hardly be believed to describe. It was such soil, or rather land, as to judge from appearances, no farmer in the interior would think of cultivating, or even fencing. Generally, the plowed fields of the Cape look white and yellow, like a mixture of salt and Indian meal. This is called soil. 
all an inlander's notions of soil and fertility will be confounded by a visit to these parts, and he will not be able, for some time forward, to distinguish soil from sand. The historian of Chatham says of a part of that town which has been gained from the sea, there is a doubtful appearance of a soil beginning to be formed. It is styled doubtful, because it would not be observed by every eye, and perhaps not acknowledged by any. We thought that this would not be a bad description of the greater part of the Cape. There is a beach on the west side of Eastham, which we crossed the next summer, half a mile wide, and stretching across the township, containing 1,700 acres on which there is not now a particle of vegetable mold, though it formerly produced wheat. All sands are here called beaches, whether they are waves of water or of air that dash against them, since they commonly have their origin on the shore. The sand in some places, says the historian in Isam, lodging against the beach grass, has been raised into hills fifty feet high, where twenty-five years ago no hills existed. In others it has filled up small valleys and swamps, where a strong-rooted bush stood, the appearance is singular. A mass of earth and sand adheres to it, resembling a small tower. In several places, rocks, which were formerly covered with soil, are disclosed, and being lashed by a sand, driven against them by the wind, look as if they were recently dug from a quarry. We were surprised to hear of the great crops of corn, which are still raised in Eastham, notwithstanding the real apparent barrenness. Our landlord in Orleans had told us that he had raised three or four hundred bushels of corn annually, and also the great number of pigs which he fattened. In Champlain's voyages, there is a plate representing the Indian cornfields hereabouts, with their wigwams in the midst, and they appeared in 1605, and it was here that the pilgrims, to quote their own words, brought eight or ten hogs head of corn and beans of the Nasa Indians in 1622 to keep themselves from starving. In 1667, the town of Easton voted that every housekeeper should kill twelve blackbirds, or three crows, which did great damage to the corn, and this vote was repeated for many years. In 1695, an additional order was passed, namely that every unmarried man in the township shall kill six blackbirds or three crows while he remains single, as a penalty for not doing it, shall not be married until he obey this order. The blackbirds, however, still molest the corn. I saw them at it next summer, and there were many scarecrows, if not scare blackbirds, in the fields, which I often mistook for men, from which I concluded that either many men were not married or many blackbirds were. Yet they put their three or four kernels in a hill and let fewer plants remain than we do. In the account of Eastham, in historical collections printed in 1802, it is said that more corn is produced than the inhabitants consume, and about a thousand bushels are annually sent to a market. The soil being free from stones, a plow passes through it speedily, and after the corn has come up, a small cape horse, somewhat larger than a goat, will, with the assistance of two boys, 
easily hoe three or four acres in a day. Several farmers are accustomed to produce 500 bushels of grain annually, and not long since one raised 800 bushels on 60 acres. Similar accounts are given today, indeed. The recent accounts are in some instances suspectable repetitions of the old, and I have no doubt that their statements are as often founded by the exception as the rule, and that by far the greater number of anchors are as barren as they appear to be, and I have no doubt that their statements are as often founded on the exception as the rule, and that by far the greater number of acres are as barren as they appear to be. It is sufficiently remarkable that any crops can be raised here, and it may be owing, as others have suggested, to the amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the warmth of the sand, and the rareness of frosts. A miller who was sharpening his stones told me that forty years ago he had been husking here, where five hundred bushels were husked in one evening, and the corn was piled six feet high or more, in the midst, and now fifteen or eighteen bushels to an acre, or an average yield. I never saw such fields of puny and uncompromising-looking corn as in this town. Probably the inhabitants are contented with small crops from a great surface easily cultivated. It is not always the most fertile land that is the most profitable, and this sand may repay cultivation as well as the fertile bottoms of the West. It is said, moreover, that the vegetables raised in the sand without manure are remarkably sweet, and pumpkins especially, though when their seed is planted in the interior, they soon degenerate. I can testify that with the vegetables here, when they succeed at all, look remarkably green and healthy, though perhaps it is partly by contrast with the sand. Yet the inhabitants of Cape Towns generally do not raise their own meal or pork. Their gardens are commonly little patches, that they have been redeemed from the edges of marshes and swamps. All the morning we had heard the sea roar on the eastern shore, which was several miles distant, for it still felt the effects of the storm in which the St. John was wrecked. Though a schoolboy, whom we overtook, hardly knew what we meant, his ears were so used to it. He would have more plainly heard the same sound in a shell. It was a very inspiriting sound to walk by, filling the whole air, that of the sea dashing against the land, heard several miles inland. Instead of having a dog to growl before your door, to have an Atlantic Ocean to growl for a whole cape. On the whole, we were glad of the storm, which would show us the ocean in its angriest mood. Charles Darwin was assured that the roar of the surf on the coast of Chilo, after a heavy gale, could be heard at night at a distance of 21 sea miles across a hilly and wooded country. We conversed with the boy we have mentioned, who might have been eight years old, making him walk the while under the lee of our umbrella, for we thought it was important to know what was life on the Cape like to a boy as to a man. We learned from him that the best grapes were to be found in that neighborhood. He was carrying his dinner in a pail, and without any impertinent questions being put by us, it did at length appear of what it consisted. The homeliest facts are always the most acceptable to an inquiring mind. At length, before we got to Easton Meeting House, 
we were left the road and struck across the country for the eastern shore at Nosset Lights, three lights close together, two or three miles distant from us. There were so many that they might be distinguished from others, but this seemed a shiftless and costly way of accomplishing that object. We found ourselves at once on the apparently boundless plain, with a tree or a fence, or with one or two exceptions, a house in sight. Instead of fences, the earth was sometimes thrown up into a slight ridge. My companion compared it to the rolling prairies of Illinois. In the storm of wind and rain which raged when we traversed it, it has no doubt appeared more vast and desolate than it really was, as there were no hills, but only here and there a dry hollow in the midst of the waste, and the distant horizon was concealed by mist. We did not know whether it was high or low. The solitary traveler, who we saw perambulating in the distance, looked like some giant. He appeared to walk slouchingly, as if held up by above the straps under his shoulders, as much as supposed by the plain below. Men and boys would have appeared alike at a little distance, there being no object by which to measure them. Indeed, to an inlander, the Cape landscape is a constant mirage. This kind of country extended a mile or two each way. These were the plains of Nosset, once covered with wood, wherein the winter winds howl and the snow blows right merrily in the face of the traveler. I was glad to have got out of the towns, where I am wont to feel unspeakably mean and disgraced, to have left behind me for a season of the barrooms of Massachusetts, where the full-grown are not yet weaned from savage and filthy habits, still sucking a cigar. My spirits rose in proportion to the outward dreariness. The towns need to be ventilated. The gods would be pleased to see some pure flames from their altars. They are not to be appeased with cigar smoke. As we thus skirted the back side of the towns, for we did not enter any village, till we got to Provincetown, we read their histories under our umbrellas, rarely meeting anybody. The old accounts are the richest in topography, which was what we wanted most, and indeed, in most things else, for I find that the readable parts of the modern accounts of these towns consist, in great measure, of quotations, acknowledged and unacknowledged, from the older ones, without any additional information of equal interest, town histories, which at length run into a history of the church of that place, that being the only story they have to tell, and conclude by quoting the Latin epitaphs of the old pastors, having been written in good old days of Latin and the Greek, they will go back to the ordination of every minister and tell you faithfully who made the introductory prayer and who delivered the sermon, who made the ordaining prayer and who gave the charge who extended the right hand of fellowship, and who pronounced the benediction. Also, how many ecclesiastical councils convened from time to time to inquire into the orthodoxy of some minister and the names of all who composed them, as it will take us an hour to get over this plain, and there is no variety in the prospect. Peculiar as it is, I will read a little in the history of Easton the while. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. 
Good night.